Hey, how, how's everybody doing this morning? You guys, you guys okay? Everybody's, yeah, everybody's good, everybody's awake. Still sunny, that's true, that's true. Um, yeah, and the temperatures are a little, you know, a little cooler, which is nice, because you get the sun and the cool temperatures, which is like, that's bonus, right? So, um, this morning we're going to be looking at, at, at uh, Mark chapter 11. We're going to be... Um, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of that and just to kind of put it all in perspective for just a second. So Mark, there's only 16 chapters in Mark, right? And so Mark takes the first 10 chapters to go through the life of Christ, right? Which, if you think about it, is a pretty condensed version, right? That's because the whole time Mark is writing... He is, um, he's kind of marching us to the cross is the phrase that Luke used the other day, right? Like he, the whole thing is kind of pointed towards the cross, right? The, 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 the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he spends 10 chapters on the whole life of Christ, but then he spends the last six on the final week, right? So, um, I don't know, I, <clears throat> kind of in my brain, when I, when I think about him doing it that way, um, I kind of think of, of this uh, here. What am I doing wrong? Back up? Yeah, I'm too far. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of think of this um, here a couple of weeks ago. We 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 were gone for about a month, right? So we flew back over further. I'm pretty far back. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, we flew back, and we took and we dropped off Israel at college. Uh, if you guys have, I mean, most of all of you guys have met Israel. He's a uh, kind of tall, you know, a little goofy. Um, he takes after his parents in that, I think, is, is where he gets that. He comes back pretty honest. And, um, and so we took him, and we dropped him off at college over in the States. You know, um, yeah. I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing wrong so I can quit doing it. Um, but uh, we dropped him off at the States so that he could go and, 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 and do college. And, and um, you know, it's a funny thing because, like, we dropped him off that Friday. And then on the way back um, from, from dropping him off, we were, we were coming back to where dad, you know, dad's wife uh, has a house there like an hour and a half away from where the college is. And so we dropped Israel off and we're driving back. And we're just a mess, right? We're just blubbering and, and kind of, uh, you know, I'm driving, so I'm trying to maintain, like, <clears throat> you know, there's kind of a lot of that going on, right? You know, kind of trying to, like, adjust myself and get used to it. And, but the thing is, is that, like, Israel's fine, right? Like, he's fine. Like, I, like, and then we got back, and we're all, like, like uh, you know, we're missing him like crazy. And, and. And luckily, Jess is upstairs for Children's Church, so I can tell all these stories and she won't start crying. Um, but, like, we get back in the first week and it's like, it's like grief, right? It's like, like the clo that's the closest thing that I can compare it to is, like, um, this, this whole process of, like, every little thing that we think of. We're like, oh, that'd be fun. I, you know, I could tell, oh, wait, he's, he's, he's back over there. And then, right? And at one point, I was up in my office, I was, I was working on something, and I just hear Jess go, Nick, could you come here? And I'm like, okay, I don't know what this is. She, 
And I get down there and she's like, could you empty the dehumidifier? And then we're both like sobbing while I empty the dehumidifier. Cause that was like, that was like his job, right? But the thing is, is like, every time I call him, he's fine, right? And he's gonna be, he's like, he's totally fine. And he's like, he's, uh, you know, I call him and he's like, oh yeah, we've got this, uh, this thing at the, at the dorm and, or we've got this thing, you know, we're going over to my small group leader's house and yada, yada, yada. And like, he's having a blast, right? Like he's, he, I talked to him and he's, he's, he's like, he's working on all this work stuff. Like he's got a job doing tech stuff at the college now, which is awesome. Um, and cause you know, he's got a job, um, <laughs> you know, that's really cool. And like, he's totally fine. And, and that's as it should be, right? Like it is normal as the parents to, you know, who dropped him off for us to miss him more than he misses us. Right. Because he's starting. And for us, this is kind of the closing of the chapter. And so like, the thing when I think about that though is like I think one of the things that made it so hard is that for for the last 20 years almost right like he's 19 for almost the last 20 years our lives have really kind of centered around them in a lot of ways like obviously not in an hopefully not in an unhealthy way right like uh, we weren't like trying to helicopter or like uh, you know like you know we kind of let them you know we gave them chores and stuff you know like we we, we try to, you know, keep them in line. But I mean, like, all of our time, really, and, and like so much of our effort, so much of our focus has been to raise them, right? And, uh, and, and to get to the point where it's like, it's all kind of been leading up to this, right? Like, really, the goal was to raise a decent human that then we could unleash onto society, right? That's the goal, is like, Okay, he's not a serial killer or a third world dictator, right? Like he's, he's, uh, I mean, he can be kind of obnoxious, but mostly that's around us. Usually when he's around other people, he's very polite and courteous. So like, that's good, you know? And like, but that was the whole point of raising him, right? Is to, is to kind of release him. And I feel like what we've looked at so far in Mark, like for the first 10 chapters, right? has has all been kind of has been leading up to this final week like this is the whole point of the book of mark is this final six chapters right and so uh without any further ado that's kind of where we're at today um a couple of things that i want to kind of i want to kind of set the stage of the story that we're going to look at before we dig into it uh one thing to remember is that this is only the second event that's recorded so far there's there's several others coming up in the next week but this is the second event so far that has been recorded in all four gospels okay that's important right because if all four gospel writers wrote it down it was a big deal right now the first one the one that the one that came before this event that we're going to look at today was the feeding of the 5000 okay if if you if you don't remember the story Jesus is preaching there's a giant crowd he looks out he says hey we probably better feed everybody the, the of course the feeding of the 5 and the 4000 there's a lot of similarities but he basically says hey we should feed everybody the disciples as per usual kind of go with what and he goes well what do we got and so he takes the the five loaves and two fishes he breaks them and they just keep you know they collect the 12 baskets and everybody is so excited and so impressed that they try to make him king. And when he resists, they try to forcibly make him king, right? They're like, no, no, you make food, you be king, right? Like this, this thing, right? Okay. So they try to make him king by force. And, and so <clears throat> I want you to have that in mind 
But then I also want to kind of look at like where this takes place. Like I want you to have in your brain like, okay, here's the setting. Um, all right, so I brought some books. Don't need this. Okay. Um, so I want to kind of pass this around and the microphone may squeal. But this is, a, this is just a, a picture of the city of Jerusalem, okay? And if you look, uh, you can kind of see it, right? It has this, this weird shape that's not exactly, you know, it's not quite to scale. It's not 100% accurate, but because the city of Jerusalem didn't look like a jelly bean, okay? Like, that's not the thing. But if you look on it, what it does have, it's kind of shape-ish, but then it's got like this wall around the temple, the wall around the temple itself, the temple... And then, like, there's this weird thing over here on one side that's like a bunch of rooms. And I've done, I've done some looking, and I can't quite figure out what those rooms are. I assume that's where people stayed or they held stuff or something. But um, this little, like, rectangle over here is going to come up here in a second. But we're not there yet. So what we've got here in this picture is, so you've got the Mount of Olives. That's this nice, beautiful, see, it's a mountain. You can tell because it's, right? I don't know. So kind of like landscape-wise, Jesus has been staying in Bethany, okay? I know you guys can't read that, A, because my handwriting's terrible, and B, because it's too far away. But what it says in my horrible script is Bethany, right? So that's the city, that's the town of Bethany. And then up here kind of towards the middle of the hill is Bethphage, okay? So that's the, the town Remember he said as they came upon the city of Bethphage? Okay, that's where that is. And then this is kind of the hill down, right? So there's the road up here. And then as, as you're standing on top of the hill, you're looking down the road. And right in front of you, you see, um, you see the city of Jerusalem. But specifically, you're, you're going down the hill. You're looking at, like right in front of you, is the temple, right? And so... <clears throat> That's, that's kind of what's going on is Jesus, uh, which we, we looked at the story a little bit. We're going to dig into it a little deeper here in just a second. But as Jesus is cresting the hill and the crowd is, is gathered all over this hill because it kind of comes down the hill and around and then up the hill, right? Like there's a little bit of hill up into the city, right? And then the walls are on top of that. And so this is kind of what you see uh, coming in. <clears throat> and ah, no. Nah. I kind of debated on whether or not to like draw like perspective wise, like here's what it looks like. We're not going to do that. All right. I'm going to resist that urge. And, but as you're coming down in, you come around. And so as the crowds gathering and they're yelling and they're shouting and they're, they're, they're throwing down the cloaks and they're putting down the branches. Um, all of that stuff is a hundred percent visible to the temple. Okay. Like they're watching this all happen. Okay. And not only are they watching, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, all the religious leaders, they're standing there uh, just kind of quietly, I think, freaking out in their brains, right? Like they are, they're losing their minds as they're watching this all happen. I mean, this is, if there was a worse nightmare for a Pharisee, this is probably what it looked like, right? So they're coming down this, all the Pharisees, all these guys are losing their minds. But the other thing that's really, really interesting, as we, as we look into it later, we're going to look at, um, it's not recorded in Mark, but I believe it's, I'll have to look here in a second, but I'm pretty sure it's Luke that records it. They, they come up to him and they're like, hey, you need to tell everybody to knock it off, okay? And Jesus says, no, uh, if, if I did, then the rocks would cry out, you know, that'd be weird. So we're just going to keep doing this. Um, 
But the thing is, is that when they say that, what they're worried about is this isn't just happening in view of the city of Jerusalem. This isn't just happening in view of the, the people, uh, you know, the leaders, the spiritual leaders. This little thing right here is the main garrison in Jerusalem. That little square right there, Antonio's, Antonio's Fortress, right? I think is how you say it. It says it on the paper. Somebody look. Okay. But that little thing right there is on Antonio's fortress. It's the main garrison in Jerusalem. And so when he comes down the hill and goes around, he is in full view of not just the religious leaders, but also the, the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. And so they're not just freaking out because this is like very inconvenient to them or it's very irritating to them. They're freaking out because they're also worried like if the Romans get weird about this, it's going to get real serious real fast. Right? Okay? And so like that is kind of the setting that this story takes place in, right? Okay? So we're going to start. Um, I want to start there in verse 1. And, and what I want to do is I want to go back through what we've already read. And I want to kind of, uh, kind of suss out some details, right? Like kind of look at some things and go, hey, here's something you may have missed. Or, hey, here's something that, that came up in my study and it's really interesting here, right? Okay? And then I want to take all that and I want to smush it together at the end and just kind of go like, okay, we've read this. What changes at home because we were here today, right? That makes sense. So like kind of the phrase would be, what's the takeaway? Like, what do we take home with us? Okay. So here it is. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Um, so there's debate on which two it was. It doesn't say, and it doesn't matter. Okay, all right? Uh, one of the commentators was like, had to be Peter and John. I'm going, if it makes you happy, man, I'm in. Right? It doesn't say, doesn't matter. Two of the disciples, he sent them on ahead. And he says this, he says, go to that village. Again, as, as is anything that's ambiguous, there's debate around it. And, and so they debate, which village was it? Was it Bethany? Was it Bethphage? I think if you look at the direction the conversation's going, Bethphage makes more sense to me. Can I prove it? Nope. But story-wise, if they're going this way and they come upon a village, that village over there, it, Bethphage makes more sense to me, okay? <clears throat> is it right? I don't know. Does it matter? Not particularly, okay? But there it is. Uh, he said, go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, uh, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, one of the other details that is included in one of the other Gospels, and I've got a, I'd have to, I don't remember, I had it looked up, I forgot what it was, and I didn't mark it down. But one of the things that's included, I'm pretty sure it's Matthew, so you might write that down and double check me. Don't ever just take my word for it. Got it? Yeah, everybody? All right? Double check it. You should always do that to any preacher that stands up there in front of you. They say, hey, this is how it was. You should, you should, you should double check it, right? Um, it's important. All right, so says, uh, go over there and untie it. One of the things that's included in Matthew is that uh, they also grabbed the mother. Can anybody think of why, if you were grabbing a colt that's never been ridden, why you would grab the mom? Because it, it keeps it calm, right? Like, the mom is essentially that little donkey's security blanket, right? And so if Jesus isn't going to get embarrassingly thrown off of this donkey as he rides in triumphantly, um, they bring the mom to keep the little one, the little one calm. I just thought that was kind of a neat little detail that, that Matthew picked up that, you know, Mark left out. 
Verse 3, it says, if anyone asks, what are you doing? Because if you're going in there and just taking a donkey, there's a decent chance somebody's going to go, hey, what's up? <laughs> right? Like if you saw somebody, like you got your neighbor has a donkey, and somebody comes in and they're like, I'm just going to take this to your donkey. Don't mind me. Right? Like you would be like, hey, what you doing there, buddy? Right? I feel like that's... He said, if anybody says, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. Right? Makes sense. He's like, hey, we're just going to borrow it. The uh, Lord needs it. We'll bring it back soon. Now, the phrase the Lord, there's a lot of debate on this. And the reason for the debate is because nobody's comfortable with the idea that Jesus' disciples walked in and stole a donkey. Right? So they're trying to find an explanation because obviously that's not what happened. Right? That's not consistent with Jesus. doesn't make any sense in the story. But trying to explain like, oh, here's what must have happened because, you know, there's a couple of different theories on when it says the Lord needs, needs it and will return it soon. Like, what was going on there? Like, what, what, what was going So, a couple of different theories on this are, one, uh, it might have meant that the owner was currently following Jesus and was on board, right? Um, so, the problem with that is, I, and I'll have to, did I write it down? Oh, yeah. So, it'd be in Luke, and we're not there yet. Uh, in Luke, there's some stuff that kind of makes us think that that theory doesn't make sense. Uh, but that's one possible explanation, okay? Uh, another possible explanation to, you know, just them randomly taking a donkey and it being okay is that maybe Jesus had already, you know, he's already in the area. Maybe they had prearranged this where the owner knew, okay, Jesus is going to call here one of these days and ask for this donkey. And when he does, it's cool. Like we've already said he can borrow it, right? Okay, so maybe it was a prearranged plan. It also... It could have been understood when it says the Lord needs it. It was a common thing if a king needed a donkey or a horse or one of your sons, and they said, hey, the king needs this. They went, okay, well, I guess there it goes, right? Like that was a common thing. And so for them to say, and we'll return it soon, would have been a real bonus, right? Because that didn't always happen when a king took stuff, right? So if the king took it, he got to keep it. That was the rules, right? Um, so it could have been understood that, that basically when they said the Lord needs it, with all the stuff that was going on, they said, oh, the king needs it, here's the donkey, that's fine. Or, the other theory is, Jesus was causing quite the, the, the hubbub, the hullabaloo, right? Like there was a lot of woo going on around Jesus, right? And so it's possible that Jesus' fame, when they said the Lord needs it, whoever the owner was, was going, well, yeah, it's, it's this Jesus guy, he's, he's you know... He's doing all this Messiah stuff and healing people. And well, you know what? If he needs a donkey, it's okay. He's doing a lot of stuff for around here, right? Like he's local celebrity. Here you go, right? Okay. All possible. One is just as good as the other. It, well, except for the, the owner was currently following Jesus and was on board because um, in Luke. So we'll, let's read verse four and five, and then I'll explain to you why that theory doesn't work for me. Um, the two disciples, this verse four, the two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside uh, the front door. Verse 5, as they were untying it and its mom, right? Everybody with me there? Some bystanders is how Mark phrases it, but in Luke, he actually says the animal's owners. So that indicates to me that when this is happening and Luke records it, it's the same thing, right? It's just told from different angles. So if Luke says that the owners were the ones talking, whether Mark's it, it was the owners in my brain, right? Does that make sense? Everybody with me? Yeah? It's not good. Nobody? Okay. So in, in my brain, 
when it says some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? Those bystanders were also the colt's owners, right? Okay, everybody with me? Uh, verse 6, they said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. And can I just take a second and recognize that for whoever these two disciples were, this had to be kind of an awkward Jesus moment, right? Yeah? Anybody, I mean, like, is anybody else thinking about, like, situationally, like, if this was me, like, I would feel super weird about this. Right? Jesus is like, no, no, it's fine. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm still a little uncomfortable, but you said so, boss, so here we go, right? Like, that would have been a very awkward situation to me. I would have felt weird walking up. I mean, like, because if nobody said anything, you're just walking up, hooking up the donkey and, and walking off without saying anything. If nobody said anything, you're just walking off with somebody's donkey, right? Like, I'd have felt weird about that. Uh, so just kudos, I guess, is what I'm saying to the apostles or the disciples that did this for listening to Jesus in the middle of the awkward, right? Because sometimes Jesus does that, right? Like he asks us to do things that are weird. He asks us to do things that are embarrassing. He asks us to do things that are hard. And these guys, even though it was weird and it was embarrassing and, and it was just awkward, they stuck with him and they did what he said anyway, right? And big surprise, it all turned out okay, right? And I, I just, that's not the whole takeaway. Like that's not the takeaway, but that's just a little extra right there. Like I feel like that's worth saying. Like, this was weird. They followed Jesus and it turned out good. There's probably a lesson in there for us. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. <clears throat> so I want to kind of, at verse six, I want to kind of pause at the awkward moment and I want to look at uh, Matthew 21, verses four and five, because it's part of the whole story and it adds in some details, right? Okay. Everybody with me? Uh, so verse 4 in Matthew 21 says this. If you want to write that, it's Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, if you want to write that down. It says this. It says, This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. And that, that little quote that it was fulfilling is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And Zechariah in chapter 9 through like 10 or 11 is full of some messianic prophecy stuff that, that is really cool. Okay? So again, if you're taking notes, that's worth following up on. All right? So <clears throat> in, in Mark's, we get like they said, you know, Jesus said, go get the donkey. So we get seven verses out of the 11 that's basically setting up them going and getting the donkey and bringing it back. Okay? We get a little bit of extra detail there in Matthew about why the donkey was so important, right? Um, Matt, Mark doesn't necessarily talk about why it was so important, but he spends enough time on it that you get the sense that it is. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 7, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, he, and he sat on it. <clears throat> It'd be a weird... Anyway, gonna, I'm going to not squirrel. Here we go. Verse 8, here it comes. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. So, <clears throat> does anybody remember what this event, I mean, this event's called the triumphal entry, but like holiday-wise, what do we call it? Do you remember? Anybody? Palm Sunday, right, exactly. 
Now you'll notice Mark doesn't say anything about palms. The only, and I thought this was really interesting because we, we titled the holiday Palm Sunday, right? But the only gospel writer who mentions palm branches at all is John. I just think that's fun. Like, but branches, sun, like branches Sunday would sound weird, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is stick Sunday. I don't, you know, like, this is random stuff in the field Sunday. It just doesn't have the same ring, right? Like, I get it. It's cool. Um, so anyway, so we call it Palm Sunday, but, but it says in Mark, it just says leafy branches. So were there palm branches? John says so, absolutely. Were there other sticks and branches and stuff that they laid out in there, leafy branches? Absolutely. I think that's the case too. Um, is it a really crucial, important detail? Not necessarily, but that's the way my brain works, okay? Like this is neat, and there it is. You, now, you, now you have it. Um, you can keep anything you can carry, right? Um, verse 9. Here it comes. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God. Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. And praise God in the highest heaven. Now, one of the phrases that the NIV includes in this passage at the end is Hosanna in the highest. Okay? Now, the, the New Living Translation, uh, it skips over that, and I'm not sure why. But um, since Hosanna, when we're doing the Palm Sunday thing, what do we always say? If, if you guys have ever done a Palm Sunday where you wave the branches, you say um, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, okay? Um, I don't know if that's a thing here, but so when we were in Unionville, every, every year we would do a, this Palm Sunday thing, and the kids would come in with their little palm branches, right? Like the, the secretary would order like a bajillion of them, and all the kids for the, for the, would all have these branches, and they would, they would do the Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, right? And that's what they always did. And so, like, Palm Sunday and Hosanna in the highest, so, like, they're, they're synonymous for me, right? Like, that's, that's the thing that I always think of. And while it's not included in Mark, I think it is an important feature. Hosanna means save now or God saves, right? Um, <clears throat> and so, I just think, you know, like, save now and God saves, um, I don't know, it's, I just think it's this incredible, it's this incredibly interesting thing to yell, right? Like, um, it became this, this shout of praise, like God saves. You're praising God because God, God, God saves. And through the history of Israel, God had continually over and over and over again, that's what God was known for, is that they would mess up and God would rescue them, right? And so it became this shout of praise <clears throat> and I just think it's, it's interesting. One of, one of them, in one of the Gospels, it says, Hosanna to the king, or to, to uh, the one who sits on King David's throne, or to the son of David, right? There's another one. There's a couple others. And it would be interesting, too, as you're going back and you're doing some reading later, to look at this Palm Sunday through all the different Gospel writers and look what they wrote down for their, their audiences to hear. It's a really interesting little study. Um, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting that they're 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 you know they're waving these branches. They've thrown them down on the ground. They're they're yelling, "God saves! God saves through the king! You know the Son of Man! God saves through uh, King David's descendants! God saves!" And they're, they're all of them. God saves, and they're giving these acclamations. And really, what they're saying, and they don't know it, which is really an interesting is. They're really kind of saying all these titles refer to Jesus. So what they're really saying is Jesus saves. 
in a, in a roundabout way. And I just think it's really interesting because, well, we're going to get to why here in a minute. But it, it's just a really, really interesting kind of a picture. <clears throat> so Mark, Mark, and another kind of uh, side caveat here is that Mark is writing to a Greek audience, a Greek-speaking audience, right? And he really simplifies what the crowd says. And again, in your free time, I would encourage you to go through and read each of the accounts and see the details the other authors picked out for the audiences. And, and one of the things I want to say kind of in relation to that, too, is that if, if that idea raises questions for you, like why did they write different things? Do they contradict? Like that whole conversation of like, why did that happen? You know, what's the deal with that? That confuses me. Like if you've got questions like that, uh, you know, we say it every week, but like if you've got questions about these stories, if you've got questions about Jesus, man, we'd love to have those conversations, right? And I'm not going to belabor that point, but like if you want to talk about some of this stuff, I would love to talk about some of this stuff. And I know Stephen and Luke would too. So, um, <clears throat> so then verse 11, and this is how Mark wraps it up. And we're going to kind of at verse 11, we're going to read verse 11, and then we're going to look at what Matthew, John, and Luke have to say also, because it, to me, while I really want to study what Mark has to say, because that's what we're doing, I also want to have a full picture of the whole thing, right? Like I want to smush it all together and get, get a clearer picture. So, <clears throat> so verse 11, here it is. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, um, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So if you just read Mark, right, it sounds like Jesus rode into town on this donkey. Everybody's going crazy. He walks into the temple, looks around. Yeah, okay, it's all still here. And then he takes off, right? <clears throat> if we read the rest of the gospel accounts of this story, it fills in kind of, here's what happens next in the story, right? Um, and so when he goes in to the, to the temple, he has a confrontation with the Pharisees, which we're going to talk about in a second. But then all of the sick and the lame come over and he spends some time healing them before he leaves and goes to, to back to Bethany, okay? And so I think something that's important to remember is that Mark... Remember I said he's reading to this Greek audience, and really the point for Mark is the cross, the burial, and the resurrection, right? He's marching us that way. And I think the reason why Mark condenses this story isn't because he wants to leave out details. It's because he doesn't want us to get distracted from the main point. Does that make sense? Um, so, yeah. So, <clears throat> if we go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, just to kind of everything that we've looked at so far... Just kind of recapping, one year ago, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? And the crowd tries to make him a king by force. He escapes, which is an odd thing to do if somebody's trying to make you king, right? He escapes. But, but here's what I want you to understand about these two stories. Both, both ways, okay, um, at the feeding of the 5,000 and at the triumphal entry, they're wanting to make Jesus king, Right? Now, the real difference between the two stories, though, one is in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus escapes. He goes away and he, he gets out of town, right? <clears throat> but the really big difference here 
is that the story of the feeding of the 5,000 happens near Galilee, out in the woods, out in the sticks, out with, with all the hillbillies, right? Okay? Out in the middle of nowhere, they try to make him king. And that gets everybody's attention. That's kind of a big deal. But what you've got to understand about this story is that it happens on the doorstep of the temple in Jerusalem, right? They're, they're the heart of their country, right? So when they try to, they're going Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to, the, you know, like they're waving these palm branches and, and, and proclaiming, you know, he's riding in on this donkey like is prophesied. Everybody knows the prophecy. They know what he's saying. They're going, oh, wow, here he comes. This is the Messiah. Sweet. We're, you know, and they've got all these antis- like expectations and things that they're anticipating that that means. And all of that is going on on the doorstep of the temple. Like this is charged. This moment is big. Okay. I just don't want us to miss that. So remember we talked about the Pharisees were not excited about all this. Luke chapter 19, verse 39 and 40. Here's what, here's what they say. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like this. (laughs) Right. They're like, Hey, tell them to knock it off. That's really what these guys are saying, right? Like, hey, hey, you're going to get us in trouble. Okay, that's what's going on here. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. And then we move to John chapter 12, verse 19, kind of filling in just a little bit more detail. It says, but then, then they said to Jesus, or they said to each other, the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone chases after him. Basically saying, you look at everybody's everybody's following him right now. There's really not much we can do. And so what's happening here is that Jesus stands toe to toe with the political and religious leaders of the day and calls their bluff. And because the crowd's backing him, there's nothing he could do. I mean, like, really, this is a movie. This is where they lift you up on the shoulders and it rolls credits. And, you know, I mean, like, this is the you know, brah, woo, we, we, here we come, like, you know, the big music starts, and like, <clears throat> but instead of gloating, right, like, Jesus really just kind of went psh, psh, to the Pharisees, right, but instead of gloating, if you, if you look into to Luke chapter 19, okay, so we're back in Luke, but it's instead, it's verse Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Instead of gloating, instead of like reveling in this triumphal moment, Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem and weeps. The word used there is that there's, that it's, it's, they're audible cries, right? Like they're, what we're talking about here is loud, noisy, slobbery, like ugly, ugly cry face crying, right? Okay, you guys with me? Like he's not just like, there's not just like this single tear rolling down his cheek. Like he is mourning for Jerusalem. Does it make you guys with me? Like ugly, like, you know, like us emptying the dehumidifiers, right? Like that. He's crying like that. And, uh, I wanted to read you a couple of quotes from an author that I've, I've been reading on this, this subject. And I just, he, he has such a way with words. And I just want to share these quotes with you just to kind of put this, like this idea of Jesus. He comes in and he's triumphal, but instead of gloating and like, you know, like kind of 
bringing, you know, using all of this power for his own means, he looks at Jerusalem and he cries. And I want to, I want to, like, I feel like these quotes will help us understand that a little better. Um, he says this, he says, as he stands over the city, perhaps looking directly into the temple courts, he pleads for peace. Not a political peace at the end of a bloody uprising, but peace with their God. That's his ultimate goal, but their eyes are blinded to this. When Jesus refuses to be the Messiah they want, they will kill him. As a result, the vengeance of God will fall upon the very stones of the city. Within 40 years, the Romans will see to it that not one stone remains upon another. And if you read further into uh, the, the passage in Luke, uh, he, Jesus mentions several times that, you know, Jerusalem, you know, and you can hear his heart breaking because he loves, he loves Jerusalem and he loves the nation of Israel. And they've chosen, they will choose here real soon to reject him, right? And he's looking at that and he knows what it's going to cost them to do that. And he cries. Second quote, here it comes. Says this, he says, he knew full well that his coronation would be with a crown of thorns. He knew that a terrible price would be paid for rejecting him. Yet he walked straight into the teeth of suffering and death, knowing the power of the resurrection. So what's our takeaway today? Like we've studied it, we've looked through it, we've dug in, we've we've looked at all the details. Like I feel like through doing that, I hope that we have a clearer picture of what's going on in this story. Like, it, hopefully it doesn't muddy the waters, but it, it, turned, it, it brings everything into focus. So, having done that, what's our takeaway? What changes at home because we study this passage, right? That's really the goal every Sunday is that we leave here differently than we came in, right? Because we studied the Word, we looked at it, and it matters. It's, it, it means something, right? Jesus rode into town hailed as king because he is, right? That was right. They had it right. But the very people hailing him as king in just a few short days would be screaming for his crucifixion. I mean, just think about that for a second. Hosanna, Hosanna, crucify, crucify. And I mean, we're talking in the, in the, in the space of three or four days. Why? Here's why. And this is important. Because he refused to be the king that they wanted. You know, this story could have went entirely differently had Jesus made different choices. He could have went in and physically decimated the nation of Rome. There would have been nothing that the Romans could have done to withstand it. If God had been behind him and he'd have made that choice, if he'd rode into town on a war horse, there would have been nothing they could have done to stop him. The religious leaders couldn't have done it. The Romans couldn't have done it. There's nobody that could have stopped him. But instead, he chose to ride into town on a donkey. He never intended to be the king that they wanted. They wanted salvation from Rome, but they were thinking on too small of a scale. Jesus didn't come to save us from a corrupt government, although that would be nice, 
occasionally, right? Like, that'd be great. Um, pretty much universally, that would be nice, right? He didn't come to save us from a corrupt government. He came to save us from the corruption of sin, right? He didn't come to save them from Rome. He came, them to, save, he came to save them from sin and death, right? The takeaway today is that we often get, G- we often get Jesus just as wrong as the crowd did that day. And if you think through your own life and your own experiences, I, I know that if, for me, that, that idea just resonates, right? Like I think through my life and I think of the times where I wanted Jesus to be this, but he was this. And I was so frustrated and so disappointed, but ultimately every single time this ended up being better, right? We know that he's king, but we want him to be a king that suits our agendas. But Jesus didn't come to save us from crappy cars and boring jobs. Now, can those things get better after following Jesus? Absolutely. But we can't ever forget that Jesus came to save us from our sins. We all have sin, and without Jesus, it leads to death. Those are facts. Okay? But Jesus walked down that hill knowing that a few, in a few days the crowd that would call for that, that same crowd that was hailing him as king would call for his death. And that the powers of the day would murder him in a horrible fashion. He walked down that hill knowing those things. Because he wants to be our prince of peace. They wanted a Messiah riding on a war horse and leading the charge to conquer Rome. They wanted. Uh, and they wanted, I don't know, like, that's what they wanted. But instead they got Jesus on a donkey. If you look at that by worldly standards, it seems like less. But the reality is, is that Jesus on a donkey conquered more kingdoms and, and I don't just mean, like, let's not get into the political and all the wars and all that stuff. I don't mean physically conquered through strength of arm. If that's what he wanted to do, he would have done it here. But what I mean is that it, through his teachings and through the world, through the way that his teachings and his life have changed people, he has conquered kingdoms uncountable. He has changed the world completely. They were disappointed, but they had it so wrong because on Easter Sunday, Jesus conquered for sure, but he conquered sin and death through the power of his sacrifice and resurrection, right? So here it is. Here's the takeaway. Real simple. Don't settle for a little king on a big horse. Don't trade eternal salvation for temporary stuff. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we just thank you for loving us. We thank you for uh, the way that you provide. God, we thank you um, for God that even though we get it so wrong so often, that you always love us. You don't ever say, okay, that's enough, I give up on you. You just keep loving us. And Father God, I pray that, that you would help us to see you clearly.
to keep our eyes focused on you, and that we would not long for easy and simple and temporary. That you would help us to have the strength and the courage to, to continue to chase after you even when it's weird and awkward and hard. Father God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.